0: This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wilde and Ms. Mayday, We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups.
1: So, Miss Mayday, Schrodinger took his cat to the vet. And they came out and said to the owner, I have good news and bad news, but I don't know which one's right. Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. So that's only funny if you know about Schrodinger's cat. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Basically Google it if you want to know, but it's about a cat inside of a box and not knowing what's happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a nice little psychological conundrum here.
1: Starting with that, no, our case is not about cats. It's about a veterinarian.
0: Oh, okay. That's the the connection, the lead in there.
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, so June 14th, 1929, we're in Ohio at two North High School, or when two North High School teenage boys, Paul Krumloff and Milton Miller, they were stomping through the weeds at New York Central Pistol Range. Yes, we know that it's called New York Central Pistol Range, but we are in Ohio, and no, we have absolutely no idea why they called it New York Central, so just forget about it. Now it's called Jackson Police Columbus Academy. Yeah. Um, Which makes a lot more sense. (laughs) And so they were going through there. So that way they could go do some target practice and they saw like a bundle of clothes in the weeds. And when they got closer, they saw that it was actually a deceased woman and she was face down. So her face was down, but her body was kind of turned on its side. So they couldn't see her face, but they definitely saw her body and saw that she was a woman. And so they ran to the police. They returned with two officers to point out exactly where she was. And then the coroner and a photographer also showed up. Okay. And she was wearing a brown dress with a white collar and she had brown hair. And that was pretty much the only distinguishing characteristics that she had at that time. And now we have to leapfrog. So the body's found, but now we're going to go to Ohio State University where two roommates, Beatrice and Alice Buston reported their roommate, Theora Hicks, missing. Ohio State University, I'm not quite sure where that is in proximity to the shooting range. So, I didn't google it.
0: Yeah, so Ohio State has six actual different campuses throughout the state of Ohio. Oh. And the heart of the university or the quote unquote Buckeye heart because they are the Buckeyes is there in Columbus. So, okay. this range is in Columbus, just outside of Columbus, and the campus is there in Columbus which is the heart of the state of Ohio. Okay. So Ohio State, it's a really old campus. It was founded in 1870. And its original, which is why this is kind of relevant, its original name was the Ohio Agricultural and Mechanical College because oh. of its vicinity to a farming community. So a lot of the degree programs were kind of aimed towards agricultural jobs. So the first classes were held September 17th, 1873, and the first class of six men graduating in 1878. Six men? That's crazy. Just six, yeah. And then the first woman was an engineering major and she graduated in 1879. A girl? Um so at the time, you know, being called Ohio Agricultural and Mechanical College, shortly thereafter its name was changed to the Ohio State University in 1878. That's crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So the roommates, they reported her missing on the 14th, but they said that they hadn't seen her since the 13th. And they said that's super unlike her. She was the kind of girl everybody knew her whereabouts at any given time, as any true crime fanatic knows. You just make sure somebody knows where you are at all times. And if you don't do that, start doing it now, please.
0: <laughs> Right. You have to check in. Yeah. You do this for me all the time. I, I <laughs> sometimes forget and you're checking in with me to make sure that I have arrived back off of a boat safely so that I'm not terrifying you, <laughs> that I'm not lost at sea or anything. So yeah, it is definitely a thing. I may or
1: may not have yelled at Miss Mayday more than once for forgetting to update me that she's safe.
0: <laughs> yeah. So again, her roommates, Theora's roommates are doing their due diligence. And- Completely. And so they were just like, this is
1: definitely not like." her. Um, she said that she was leaving for a date at 7 30 PM, but she said that she would be back at the hospital that she worked at later that evening. So again, she told her roommates leaving at 7:30, having a date, definitely going to be at work or at the hospital after the date. And they didn't see her. So when they didn't see her and she didn't come home, they were like, we gotta, we gotta do this. And so since the coincidence was too likely June 14th, they find a dead body, June 14th, they have a report of a missing woman, same age range. They went to question Beatrice and Alice about Theora, and they were able to identify their decedent as the missing roommate. So she didn't go unknown for very long at all. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: she obviously was not missing for very long at all because this was in the morning. A little bit about Theora. She was born in Johnson City, New York in 1905. She was an only child. She wound up getting raised in Florida with her father, who was a teacher, and her mother, who was a homemaker. She was five foot seven, 145 pounds with short, dark brown pixie cut. So when they said brown hair, they didn't specify, but it's like a pixie cut, which is a little bit unique for the time.
0: Yeah. It's a little starting to come out of fashion. Yeah.
1: When you say pixie cut, it's not the pixie cut that we know today. I don't know how else it's not the Bob Mm -hmm. it's in between a Bob and like the pixie cut that we know today.
0: Yeah. It's just a really (laughs) short haircut for women. So yeah. And at the time it was sort of like, so 1929, the flapper fashion is starting to come out of fashion and we're moving into the thirties, but women's hairstyles at the time were traditionally on the shorter side, but not generally necessarily this short. Mm -hmm. And so once again, highly distinguishable
1: for the time, the location, everything. And she had actually graduated Ohio State University, but I couldn't figure out what her undergrad degree was in, but she was going to postgrad in the medical school. Postgrad is for anybody that's not from America. Once you graduate with your degree in the, your field of study, you can go and get further education. So we have high school, then college, and then you have graduate school, which is where you get your master's degree or your PhD or your doctorate or medical school degree, which is what she was going for. While she was in medical school in order to pay for her tuition, she was a stenographer, the court reporters. But in this case, she was doing it for a veterinarian who was Dr. Snook. This is at a time where women were only 4% of the profession of medical right. Medical students, if you will.
0: Right. And I found a very interesting article kind of on women in the medical profession around this time. It was called Sex Discrimination Admission to Medical School in the years between 1929 and 1984. It's authored by Stephen Cole. It's in the American Journal of Sociology. When
1: was it published? Do you know?
0: I actually don't know. I have it in the references, but I'll have to get back to you on that. But the article is really interesting because it was basically a study of discrimination and why there's low representation of women in the medical field. Because at the turn of the century, there was actually an influx of women in the medical profession because of the wars, right? Okay. Um, Yeah. Remember nursing fields, a lot of the women went to the battlefield and they helped out with the red cross. And then suddenly we see this like drop off in like the late 1920s kind of post-war era. And this, they said, was primarily a result of differences in socialization-based occupational choice. So what that means is basically- You can't see the look on my face where I'm like- I know. I know. You know, it's (laughs) So, socialization-based occupational choice. So women were choosing to go back into traditional gender roles- and this was because medicine in the past was not considered to be a suitable occupation for women and so it was a little bit of both women's decision to kind of settle back into a more traditional gender role when men were returning from war and then also i think men being just generally more comfortable too with women not being in that profession so everyone Mm. kind of stabilized into their socialized roles right i can see that like men are like i don't want
1: a woman doctor
0: right and this is at least in american society and then the interesting thing though is this paper doesn't address the important questions of whether women had faced discrimination either before application to medical school or after admission to Mm. it so we're not sure kind of what that impact whether that impacted it or not, probably I'm, I'm assuming that there's a big part of this is discrimination, just trying to get into medical school and how many applications were probably rejected and therefore you can't get into Gotcha. Which is why right. there's only 4%. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why I think this is accounting for the loan numbers at this point.
1: Well, Theora was going against the odds. She didn't care. She's right. like, I'm, I'm doing this. I don't care. It's the 19, late 1920s. Get over it she was a single woman. Her roommate said she didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't gossip or talk about her personal life. They did know that she was known to have quote unquote boyfriends. Basically she dated around. I'm not going to say like, Oh, she's promiscuous. She just didn't want to settle down with any one person is what it boiled down to.
0: Right. And I mean, if she's going to medical school. And I think that's it. She didn't want the distraction. That's
1: a pure speculation.
0: Right. This is that I have. Yeah. This is us guessing at this, but I mean, if I was a woman, I was going to medical school. If I was a woman, I am a woman, (laughs) but um, I mean, like if I were in her shoes, if I was yes, her. Yes. And the woman that she was at this time in 1929. And if I was in a predominantly male dominated medical, you know, program, I wouldn't want to do that either. I would just want to focus on my studies because I'm sure she's facing a lot of adversity as is.
1: Yeah. So they were like, yeah, she had boyfriends, but basically she was the perfect roommate, which is why they cared about her so much reported her missing. They really did care about her. And so the last night that she was seen alive, she had taken a taxi from the hospital to her date. Mm -hmm. And the driver told police that she seemed a little bit edgy. Okay. Fancy wiggly, if you will.
0: Anxious. And
1: she, yeah. And so she wanted to be driven through town to search for her date who was driving a Ford coupe. So she was doing one of those, like, can you just drive around the block a couple times and let me scope like, things take out? A look. Yeah. yeah. She couldn't find him though. And so she, instead she just had the driver take her back to campus. Cause she was like, look, I'm not getting out if I don't see his coupe. Mm-hmm. So just take me back. And it's his loss, not mine. And so neighbors told police that they saw her in the company of an older man later that night. He had horn rimmed glasses, which if anybody watched the TV show heroes with like the cheerleader, it's the cheerleaders,
0: dad's glasses. Mm-hmm.
1: And in fact, they called him horn rimmed glasses.
0: <laughs> okay. So they are very it, distinct.
1: Yeah. So if you want to picture it, that is exactly what he was wearing. He was about in his forties and he drove the Ford coupe. And so Going on this information, police published his description in the Ohio State Journal, basically saying he was heavily built and everything that we've already described. So they believe this is, quote, this man holds the secret of the murder of Theora Hicks. This man, name unknown, has been seen frequently with the murdered girl. If you know of such a man, you may hasten the solution of one of the most gruesome cases in the history of Columbus by informing police of your knowledge or suspicions. That's a pretty like pointed... Quid, yeah, the public,
0: yeah, because they're definitely reaching out to the public for help on this, yeah, in a very specific reason, Mm -hmm. and it worked, and this
1: led to Mrs. M. M. Smalley to come forward and explain that this man was he had rented out her apartment on Hubbard Avenue, and the man stated his name was Howard Snook, and he was a salesman, and he was the husband of Theora Hicks, so she recognized the girl Mm
0: -hmm. by
1: the name as well as the description. She recognized the description of the man and she said that when he went and rented this apartment from her, he said, this is my wife and I'm a salesman. Okay. All right. So police also knew that Theora had previously been associated with a man named Marion T. Myers, who was a 35 year old from the agricultural department of Ohio state university. Cause remember the name just changed like the year previous, right?
0: No, it actually changed in the late 1878. 19- 1870- 18- yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then that has nothing to do with him because he wasn't even born yet, but, but uh, he, he's attending in the agricultural department, correct? which is kind of quintessential hallmark of sort of all of the Ohio state programs. Exactly. Especially at the time.
1: And so he <laughs> did admit that he was more than friends with Theora, but he proposed to her and she laughed and rejected him. So if that lets you know what
0: her personality, (laughs) as well
1: as her thoughts on the whole, what's that called?
0: She she didn't want to settle down.
1: Yeah. I don't want to say commitment. Um, No, she just didn't want to be a housewife. Yeah. And so she was just like, (laughs) no.
0: Yeah. She didn't want to be a housewife, which would have been way common for her at that time.
1: Yeah. And so he was just like, okay, never mind. Just kidding. I'm going to move on. And then. They so they moved away from him real fast because they were like, okay, this this has nothing to do with this man. They found another man that she had been seeing called Dr. James Snook. Okay. AKA Howard Snook. Right.
0: Okay. And
1: but he had told police that he hadn't seen Theora in at least 15 days, and he claimed he had an alibi for the night of the murder.
0: Okay well,
1: police are very now interested in the doctor because Dr. James Howard Snook. He he wasn't really, you know, clever with his alias. I've got to say,
0: yeah, <laughs> his alias at the apartment was Howard Snook. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which and is he, his middle and name. He, and he claimed that he was a salesman. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. So right. he was born in 1879 in South. Okay. I say this like somebody from Tennessee. So Lebanon, but it might be Lebanon, Ohio. Yeah. But Lebanon. It's Lebanon. Lebanon. (laughs) Um, He grew up on a large farm and that sparked his interest in veterinary medicine. He earned a two-year degree from Nelson's business college with a commercial business degree. He then went back to the family farm for three years and then he went and transferred to Ohio State University graduating in 1908. He then left Ohio State to go teach at Cornell, I didn't see for how many years, but he did return to Ohio State University to become the professor of veterinary medicine. And he was also a horse surgeon at this time, which is interesting because he invented something called a snook hook, which is a surgical instrument.
0: Yes. So the snook hook, which shares his namesake, it's a very specialized veterinarian, like surgical instrument, and it's used to spay and neuter. Mostly dogs and cats. I don't imagine you could neuter a horse with one of these. It's about eight inches long with a little hook at the end. Like a crochet hook.
1: Is that what it looks like?
0: Yes, but okay. the it's a little longer, the handle part, the the straight edge part of it. And then the hook itself is a little bit more pronounced. Okay. So it's used to retrieve also the horn of the uterus while performing like hysterectomies in felines and okay. canines. So you can do both. You can spay and neuter cats and dogs with it. The curved button tip is the working end and the, the ergonomic handle part is like straight. It's usually made out of surgical grade stainless steel. And like I said before, it's, it's mostly used in the surgeries for small animals, but apparently he invented this. Yeah. Do you know what they used before then? I think I didn't they probably, even I think they just used like a blade and then like they just cut it out. Yeah. They used a blade and then they had to like find another like tweezer or something to pull, pull it out. But the snook hook is cleverly designed because it's just like one instrument and you just kind of, you can make an incision and also grab and hook it out. You know, I'm picturing like Egyptian mummification. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's very similar to that that device that they put up the the nose. To nasal, remove the brain, To remove right? the, yeah, they like mince up the brain and pull it out okay. from the nose. Yeah. The so same. that's what I'm picturing. Yes. Very similar. And it's actually
1: still used today. Yeah. So all of our veterinary listeners, I know I've got a couple of you because I'm friends with you. Hi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever use the snook hook, this is the man that invented it. Mm-hmm. He also founded the Alpha Psi for Veterinary Fraternity at Ohio State University, which I believe also sprawled out to other colleges that have College of Veterinary Medicine.
0: Okay. I didn't look into that. I did not know that.
1: Yeah. And okay, here's where we get to like his other accolades. So he's not only famous in the animal science field, but he also won two Olympic gold medals for pistol shooting. He won. Really? Yeah. He's an Olympian. Um, He won the men's free pistol 50 meter team and the military pistol team. So the both of them were team events. So the funny thing is, is in the 1920 Antwerp Belgium Olympics, he only made it on that team as an alternate. So one of the original team members had to drop out. And so that's how he got there. And then that team wound up winning a gold medal as well.
0: Okay. So he has two gold medals from Mm -hmm. the 1920 games in Antwerp. Yep. The funny thing about the 1920s Belgium
1: Olympics is that that is where they introduced that five ring symbol
0: flag. Yeah. It's, I don't know if funny is the right (laughs) word to describe it, but so the history of this basically is this. So the 1920 Olympic games in Antwerp were originally scheduled to be in 1916 and it was supposed to be in Berlin. Oh, but remember, yeah, we no. had to cancel it because it's <laughs> World War One. Yeah, no. So they canceled that because of the World War, and they ended up then rescheduling the games in 1920, and they awarded the games to Antwerp to honor the suffering that had been inflicted on the Belgian people during World War One. Okay. So at the opening ceremony... This was the first time we see the Olympic flag, which is the five rings that signify the universality of the Olympic Games and the union of the five continents. And this was raised for the first time here at these 1920 Olympic Games.
1: Wait, my brain is doing a screech. So of the five continents that provide Olympians so at the
0: time in the 1920 games, you're correct. So at the time <laughs> when the flag was generated, it represented the five continents that were participating in those games, which was Africa, Americas, Asia, Europe, and Oceania. Okay. So that's what, why there's five now. This, like there's seven. <laughs> I know. I know. But at the time, only five continents were participating in the game. Okay. So this flag was actually created by a person named Pierre Baron de Coubertin. Okay. So he was the baron of Coubertin and he was the basically this the founder. He was an educator. This was basically when the Olympic Committee becomes organized. And he at the time creates this flag of the five interlocking rings in 1913. And he uses the colors blue, yellow, black, green, and red on a white field. And it is because those are the colors of the ring, like the colors of those rings together with the white background included the colors that comprised every competing nation's flag at the time. Oh, wow. So that's why there's five rings for the five continents that were competing. Okay. These colors, because every single country that participated at that time had these colors. Oh, this introduction of this flag was actually published in August of 1913 in the Olympic review, which was kind of like a newsletter or a journal that went out regarding the Olympics. Okay. And so that's why by the night, again, they were Going into the 1916 Olympic Games, which didn't didn't actually happen because of right. World War One, so that's why it got postponed. And then it actually got raised as a flag for the first time at the 1920 Games in Antwerp.
1: That's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I yeah. Like the history
1: of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as an Olympian, a two gold, two time gold medalist Olympian, he came home. And then in 1922, he married a woman named Helen Marple, and she was a sixth grade teacher. So now that you've got these two teachers together and the couple had their daughter, Mary, who went by the name Jill in 1924. So now that we have his history and why Theora may have been enamored with this man that she was transcribing works for.
0: Yeah, because he's actually married with a child, and then he has her as a Mm -hmm. mistress that he has an apartment with that he's married, Mm -hmm. claiming that he's married to her. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: And she's essentially his secretary while trying to work her way through medical school. So, like, you've got a bunch of, you know, pretty high-end people here. Mm -hmm. And so police decided to interview him because of this connection. And he said he was at work in the early evening working on an article for the magazine Hunter Trader Trapper. He then went to a farm. I know that I like that magazine name Hunter, Trader, Trapper.
0: That's it. Yeah. Ohio, Mm -hmm. Hunter, Trader, Trapper. Yep. I feel like
1: that's a magazine my husband would subscribe to.
0: Very much so. Very much so. Yeah.
1: So he then went to a pharmacy, mailed some letters, grabbed the evening paper, and then went home. So that's his entire alibi. And he said, yeah, I know Theora beginning in 1926. She was my stenographer. She basically was a stenographer for the whole veterinary school, but I utilized her the most. And he said that he gave her a ride back to her dorm at Mac Hall. And he said, that's when everything started his whole little side affair. And so from 1926 to 1929, they did have what he said is a quote, very sexual affair.
0: Mm-hmm. Basically,
1: that's his way of saying there were no emotions involved.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was his way of getting out of it. Theora allegedly, according to him, had a very spicy sexual appetite and she
0: expected James to keep up with her. I don't know what he meant by that. I Uh, mean, the age difference, right? He's in his late 40s and she's what, in her 20s maybe? Yeah, because she was born in 1905, so early 20s. And not only
1: that, spicy for the 1920s, I mean... Definitely not on the same level as spice now. I can guarantee well, it.
0: Right. But I mean, spicy just in general, because she's not living a traditional, like looking to be married life. Yeah. She's got boyfriends, quote unquote, right?
1: Oh, so, yeah. He was basically saying he stayed with her because she had this thrall over him. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, she was sick of these short little liaisons that they kept having in their cars. And that's when he rented the room at 24 Hubbard Avenue Stating that she was his wife in order to get the room, because obviously, unwed people renting rooms together in the 1920s never went over that well.
0: Yeah, just not, yeah,
1: not a part of society at the time. (laughs) Yeah, it really wasn't. And so they met there two to three times per week between the hours of six to 9 p.m. And this is back to Mrs. Smalley, the one who owned the apartment. She told police that on the 14th, he went to the apartment and told her that his wife would no longer be renting the room. So this is the day she was reported missing and found dead. He went to her and basically said, My wife isn't gonna need this room anymore. So he paid her up to date and then left the keys behind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if that's not telling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that's an interesting coincidence.
1: A little bit. And so now police definitely they were like, All right, Dr. James Snook, we're gonna, we're gonna question you a little bit more and a little bit more aggressively. And so after 19 hours of being questioned. And this was immediately followed by a press conference. And then while this is happening, the police were looking for evidence to bring to the interrogation. So they didn't have all the evidence yet. So you've got one core of the police that was looking for evidence in the field, at the homes, at the apartment. You've got this other core of the police that are interviewing him. And then you have this other core of the police that are setting up this press conference because they are convinced that Dr. James Snook is their murderer
0: mm-hmm
1: All of this is happening within 19 hours.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, to say things were a little bit premature, meh,
0: it is what it is. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think it was just a very scintillating story, and they were just in a little bit of a hurry to get it out there.
1: Right. And so, while he's being interrogated, they said, Oh, we found a glove and a cap in your car with human blood on it that was the same blood type as Theora they said that they found pants at the cleaners that had been dropped off on June 14th that also had human blood on it, the same type as Theora. Well, based on what they told him, and by the way, police are allowed to lie, just so you guys know. Right. Hate to tell you guys, they can totally lie, so (laughs) it's what it is. But
0: these things existed. They probably didn't know that it typed theora at the time
1: exactly i mean they had the blood typing but could they have done it that fast who knows we're talking 19 hours for them to find it bring it back to the lab test it and then get it to the interrogation room yeah but i'm just letting you know could have been a lie could not who mm-hmm. knows but with that james crumbled and mm-hmm. he uh admitted he said uh you know based on the evidence this guy jack chester jr who was the prosecutor he said i want the confession I'm going to type it up. You can sign it and then we'll take it to the press conference. And so James told the police that the murder weapons were in his house when they went and searched it. These weapons also contained her human blood. So it was like everything was just being forced so hard. And this is where the press conference comes into play because police wanted him to confess to the public. So it's on record. So he couldn't say it's like coercion. They wrote up this thing and just had me sign it. I didn't really mean it because when they did this public press conference,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: he's now officially on record saying that he did it. Yeah. So now what follows is the culmination of the press conference, his testimony. It's just all repetitive. So I'm just going to leapfrog Okay. This giant gap. Every article that I read, it was just like retelling the same exact thing for his confession and trial. I'm not okay. doing that.
0: So he confessed to openly to the public during this press conference that he he murdered Theora. Correct.
1: And, and then so, he, and
0: his reason for it.
1: Yes. So Snook told the press how he met Theora, how his two-year-old daughter was taking all of his wife's time. Heaven forbid. <laughs> so he said, "I was lonely." He stated that him and Theora didn't love each other. They just satisfied each other's sexual needs. Mm -hmm. And on June 13th, 1929, in his dark blue 1929 Model T Ford Coupe, he told Theora that they were going to go to the apartment, but she said she'd rather stay in the car for their liaison at the shooting range. Basically, like, let's recapture some of our earlier spice, if you will. Mm Mm-hmm. While they were parked, he told Theora that he had to go home to his wife because they were going to have a weekend getaway, like a family trip. And he said at this point, she lost it and claimed she would kill his wife and his child and then him. Keep in mind, the series of events is strictly from his mouth.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You could take it or leave it. He then stated by this time in their relationship, she was using drugs. He claimed that she started using cocaine and would hit him and threaten him. She also smoked weed and used Spanish fly, which is like Kentheris.
0: I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Spanish fly is is actually a weird, it's a really weird thing. So it is it, what people consider an aphrodisiac. It's made from blister beetles and it's specifically the substance that is produced by the beetle called cantharidin. And it's like, it's something that they excrete. So the liquid extraction, basically that is collected and it's supposed to give you, it encourages sexual behavior. We can say, (laughs) so it's like an ecstasy an MDMA sort of, it's supposed to make you feel flushed and kind of have -hmm. more desire The use of Spanish fly actually historically has been in practice among humans for a really long time. There was uh, fabled a Roman empress who used it to encourage sexual behavior among her family to try to blackmail them into, you know, to have blackmail material. Wait, so like incest? Mm -hmm. Yeah, to promote incest so that she could have blackmail material Oh, so that she could reign, basically. Okay. And then Roman gladiators were, you know, were famed to have used it during their orgies. Okay. And then queens and kings historically have used it with their mistresses to spice things up.
1: I'm just picturing those people that run into the jungle and lick
0: the frogs. Yeah. So (laughs) something like that. So basically the way that this would have been prepared in the past is that you would take these dried beetles and then you would crush them into a powder and then you would mix it in with drinks or sweets so that the person who was receiving it would not know that it's inside what they're consuming. Okay. And then basically what it does inside is it promotes this feeling of warmth throughout the body. And it causes swelling of the genitals. Oh. So those warm fuzzies though are not really because of naturally induced attraction or chemistry, but rather due to inflammation. Gotcha. So it has a lot of really severe side effects. So one of those things is an extremely long lasting erection, but dangerously. Oh. so like somebody and, who's
1: popped like five Vi- Viagras in a night.
0: Yeah. And okay. then it causes... Sometimes even death, which in, interestingly enough, the Marquis de Sade tragically discovered in 1772 after giving sweet aniseed balls laced with Spanish fly to some prostitutes who ended up dying horrible deaths from it. Oh, so Spanish fly basically is very dangerous and it is almost nearly impossible to find these days. Products now that bear the name Spanish fly, they exist, but they're not really Spanish fly. I gotcha. And they're usually ineffective and not really the same chemical compound. Yeah. But if you can find actual Spanish fly, it is very dangerous and probably shouldn't be using it. Just don't use it, people. Just don't. Yeah. Not worth it. Right. And then she
1: also had allegedly atropine sulfate, varanol, and barbitol
0: as well. Right. Um, so atropine sulfate is typically a eye drop. That one puts in their eyes, and it's used medically to dilate the pupils before eye exams. So So that's like
1: belladonna back in the day.
0: Yes, it's it's just a beauty enhancer. So she may have used this to just make herself seem more attractive or doe-eyed, more doe-eyed, and more like youthful-looking. They say when your eyes, your pupils are dead. It's kind of that anime look. Yeah, that's kind of always been popular. But it's also used medically to treat an eye condition, basically lazy eye. So if you have lazy eye, they they use it too. Now, barbitol and veronal are the same thing. Veronal is just the brand name that Uh, uh, barbitol is marketed under. So barbitol or barbitone is a, it's a sleeping aid, but it's a barbiturate. And so this was very popular between like 1903 until about the 1950s. It's trademarked in the United States as Veronal and it's trademarked in the UK as Medinol, I think it is. Both of these things were synthesized in 1902 by German chemists, Emil Fischer and Joseph von Mering, which okay. will, their names will come up again, specifically Merings, okay. um in another episode in the near future. <laughs> but they published this discovery of barbitone in 1903 it is basically an odorless, slightly bitter, white crystalline powder. It gets marketed in 1904 by Bayer Company as Veronal. So the purpose of why one would use it, medically it's to treat insomnia, "quote unquote, induced by nervous excitability. So if somebody was a very nervous or anxious person, they would get prescribed Veronal to kind of calm their nerves and help them sleep. Now, the problem with this drug is that the therapeutic dose of it is very, very small. It's 0.6 to one grams. And a deadly dose is anywhere from three and a half grams to four and a half grams. So you really only need a very, very small amount because it will, it can cause death very easily. Gotcha. So she's probably using barbitol if she is theoretically using barbitol, as he claims Dr. Snuck is claiming it's just to help reduce insomnia or maybe to as like a depressant to kind of feel calm. So even if she did
1: use any or all of these drugs, I refuse to kink shame. Again, he said that Theora had proclivities toward quote, non-traditional sex, and she included encouraged Dr. Snook to read books about sex to improve their encounters. It was this little bit that he claimed that was the salacious little tidbit in court where everybody was just focused on her sexuality in court when it came to this entire case, which mm-hmm. is okay. Come on. Like that's a snippet of her life. So can we not,
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's also really unfortunate to have just reduced her down to this one component or aspect of her life, you know, exactly. And it's like, unfortunately, she's still the victim here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame.
1: Well, and what he was saying is that the drugs that she took allegedly had been stolen from the university medical department that he worked in, which meant he was the one who stole them for her, which nobody wanted to focus on. The only reason she would have had any access to this drugs would be through him.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: Mm -hmm. he didn't admit to taking any of these drugs himself either, by the way. Yeah. So back to the incident, he said that she was enraged. She attempted to perform fellatio on Dr. Snook. Oral cop. (laughs) Oral copulation. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay. And when he started pulling away, she bit down on his member. Mm-hmm. He kept trying to get away, at which point she then painfully grabbed and tugged at his genitals. I'm assuming all of them, like trying to pull him back to her mm-hmm. using his jubblies and mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, which yes. I'm assuming is painful. Yeah. And so he said that because he was in so much pain, it was at this point that he reached into the backseat and grabbed a ball peen hammer that he happened to have back there just Mm -hmm. out in the open, not in a toolbox or anything, just chilling in the back seat. He then struck her in the head a couple of times until she let go. He then said after these head wounds, she grabbed her purse, opened the door, and Dr. Snook claimed that he believed she had a gun in this purse. So he jumped out of the car and attacked her again in alleged self-defense. He said she finally dropped and then he was feeling merciful. So at this point, she must be in so much pain. He pulled out his pen knife and slit her throat in order to put her out of her misery rather than go get help. Okay. He then drove away threw her purse that he had collected out the window into the Olentang, Tangi River.
0: Oh, sure. Okay.
1: And then went home. <laughs> And that's where his wife found him at their dinner table eating a sandwich.
0: Okay. So he admits to murdering her with this hammer and then slitting her throat, throwing her stuff out the window into the river. Mm -hmm. So he admits to all of this, but he says it's in self-defense because she violently was biting and tugging at his genitals Mm -hmm.
1: and that he thought she might have had a gun in her purse, right? Even though she was trying to flee him. Okay. So, okay. Newspapers could not prove it print what I just told you because it's nineteen twenties and it involves male genitalia
0: and and sex and yeah. yeah.
1: And so they just printed enough, we'll put it that way. And by June 18th, he was officially dropped as a faculty member from Ohio State University because mm-hmm. the criminal allegations were a bit much for the school. Right. The case wound up going to trial in the summer of 1929, and this is where James was defended by three lawyers, John F. Seidel, a former judge, E.O. Ricketts, and Max Seifert. There were crowds that were starting to line up at 3 a.m. just for a chance to be in the courtroom to watch the procedures. And so basically, I said, picture Black Friday in America, along with journalists and everybody just trying to push their way into the courtroom. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what it seemed like. A lot of details of the trial were considered too salacious to be printed by the journalists who had like three tables set up for all of them. They didn't even get their full stories worth, even after waiting in line forever, because they weren't allowed to print it. Mm-hmm. The court reporter, however, they were privy to the entire trial, and they did not have the same what's it called censorship. Yeah, they can't because, because they didn't Yeah, they're the court reporter. They have all the info. And since they weren't censored by, say, the newspaper or anybody that was their higher ups, they decided to publish the trial transcript. And that's how I was able to find the minute details that I was able to give you because those were not printed in any newspapers at the time. Mm -hmm. So the couple's love letters, they were allowed to be read in court, and those were in the trial transcript. In addition, James testifying himself about all the details that I just said including the blowjob, the grabbing of his genitals. That was all published in the trial transcript because mm. they were like, hey, the public has a right to know about all of this.
0: Well, I mean, they're making a transcript of what is being said on the stand. So yeah, it's going to be dictated directly.
1: Right. You know. But like our trial transcripts, when we testify, aren't made to the public. Not.
0: They can be.
1: Yes. Yeah. With requests. So, but, but- yeah,
0: yeah. But here it sounds like the court recorders were just, Deciding to release mm-hmm. the transcripts on their own because yes. it was super scandalous at the time. I'm sure it was very um, lucrative, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't read
1: anything about them getting paid or anything. I just know that trial transcript was released. And so prosecutor Jack Chester Jr., the one who enabled the confession from Dr. Snook, he called 21 witnesses, including the coroner, who was the one to determine that the next slash was the fatal act, not the beating with the hammer. And this fact was important. And that's because they basically, I'll come back to it. Okay, so it it is important, but the defense attorney called 42 witnesses, including James. The jury itself consisted of 14 jurors, and only two women were in that jury pool, and one was dismissed for talking with Dr. Snook's attorney. You're not allowed to do that. And that allowed a male alternate to take place. So only one female juror was present. It took only 28 minutes to render their verdict. And it was like a three month trial or something, but he was found guilty of first degree murder. There's a reason that it was first degree, not second degree or manslaughter. And so let's go into the specifics of first degree murder in America and what that means. United States, not
0: yeah. Yeah. Continent, (laughs) not the Americas, but the United States of America. Okay. So first degree murder is the intentional killing of another person by someone who has acted willfully deliberately, or with planning. That is the legal definition. So generally with first degree, there are two types of first degree murder, premeditated intent to kill and felony murder. So we're going to focus here on first degree murder involving premeditated intent to kill. And this goes to the coroner's testimony, right? Because the coroner has this fact that what actually killed Theora was the, the neck slit. Yes. So, and not the beating. So this becomes a question, right? So Um, they
1: basically, regardless of the fact of where the hammer was located when he started beating her, when he started beating her with the hammer and she was then outside of the car, he could have just driven away. Right. And then he was no longer in fear for his life.
0: Right. And this is where the willfully deliberately and with planning comes in a part of first degree murder.
1: Exactly. Because she was no longer able to fight back. And he had the time to contemplate the act of exiting the vehicle with a knife to approach her, to slit her throat. And so that time period between the hammer blows and her exiting the vehicle and him exiting the vehicle to slit her throat is where they say it willfully was an act of murder.
0: Yes. It was the intent to kill at that moment which is different than felony murder, which is unintentionally resulting in a killing. Exactly. And so because
1: of this, because he got found guilty of first degree murder, he was sentenced by no recommendation of mercy, which meant a mandatory death sentence in Ohio at the time. And so he was sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. So on February 28th, 1930. So what is that? Less than a year after she was killed, He was led to Ohio's electric chair, a.k.a. Old Sparky.
0: Yes. So I looked into Ohio's electric chair and I found that Old Sparky is not a unique name to just Ohio's electric chair. There's lots of states that actually call their electric chair Old Sparky. It's just kind of like a
1: disappointing
0: name for electric chairs in general.
1: I feel like they need to be more unique.
0: Yeah, but interesting thing about Ohio and the history of electric chair. Ohio was actually the second state to adopt the electric chair as a means of execution. They executed 315 people between 1897 and its last use, which was in 1963. So the state itself officially stopped using the electric chair in 2001, and now they exclusively only use lethal injection in executions. However, Old Sparky is now a museum exhibit, and it is located in the state of Ohio Correctional Facility Museum, which is inside of Ohio State Reformatory. So this prison is kind of famous. Interesting fun facts about the Ohio State Reformatory, which was also known as Mansfield Reformatory. It's located in Mansfield, Ohio it was built between 1886 and 1910 and it was operational until about 1990 when the u.s federal court ruling basically what we know as the boyd consent decree ordered the facility to be closed you may remember this prison because it was although it's been used in film and television before it was super famous because of the film shawshank redemption so that is the prison where most of the scenes of that movie took place. That's
1: fun. For some reason, I was picturing the Green
0: Mile, but now I can picture the Shawshank. Yeah. So if you look it up, it is actually a quite, I think it's a beautiful building. It's, it doesn't look anything. <laughs> i sure the
1: prisoners didn't feel that way. No, no. <laughs>
0: from the outside. I'm saying from the oh. outside, it actually looks really nice I to me personally. Yeah. It's historical. It's brick and stone it's got circular domes it really doesn't look like what you would imagine a prison to look like but it's it's a really old building and now that they use it as a museum it's kind of like a historical museum for the prison system there in ohio and this is currently where that old electric chair is now there and you can get a tour and view old sparky there that's fun Well,
1: Dr. Snook was the 144th person executed on said chair, and he was one of 315 executions that happened on it. Mm -hmm. I have a fun fact, either Miss Mayday, it's a a mutual fun fact, but in 1911, the electric chair used to have leather restraints to hold you in place while you were being electrocuted.
0: It's also often depicted in movies this way, Exactly, You see them strap the person down with these leather straps.
1: Right. But- That's not the case, because in 1911, they were changed out with metal clamps attached to the chair, which was suggested by convict Charles Justice. And the I I guess I shouldn't say fun fact. Okay, The The fun fact is the fact (laughs) that the leather straps are depicted incorrectly from the time 1911 on because they are metal after that. Mm -hmm. But the ironic thing is the man that suggested you change the leather to metal was then executed on the very chair that he improved. Right.
0: So (laughs) with strapped down being strapped down with the metal.
1: Exactly. So whether he did it to help himself, nobody knows, but that's his legacy.
0: It was just to make the executions less cruel because with the leather straps, it oftentimes reduced the connectivity, electricity, and the person. And so they would be electrocuted, but a lot of the times it wouldn't kill them
1: immediately. And it was a long-term. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Lots of Lots of needing to pull, push and pull on that lever.
1: (laughs) So he might've done it just to help himself, but either way, he was executed on the very chair that he did improve to make it a more humane execution. So that's, you got lots of fun facts this episode. Dr. Snook's wife stayed by her husband's side until he was executed. She, whether she believed he was innocent or not, she did believe that they were to be married until death. Mm-hmm. He was buried in Greenlawn Cemetery, and there are reports of a restless spirit haunting the cemetery. His headstone only reads James Howard, 1879 to 1930. And they didn't use the last name Snook, and they kept his marker a secret for 75 years because they didn't want people going and messing with his grave and/or headstone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His wife stayed in Columbus until she died in 1978. She did drop the name Snook, and she and her daughter Mary, aka Jill used her Helen's maiden name of Marple. Mm -hmm. So after he was executed, they both went by the name Marple. Their daughter finished school, married, and went on to become a teacher herself, this time in Hawaii, where she faded into obscurity. So Mm -hmm. definitely a family of teachers. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about this Ohio State Penitentiary that Miss Mayday was talking about, how it became a museum, is a few months after James was executed, a major event took place.
0: Yes. So on April 21st, 1930, there was a fire at the prison and it killed 322 inmates. So how did this fire happen? Originally, this prison was built to only hold 1500 people in it. So at the time of the 1930 fire, there were 4,300 prisoners. Yeah. 4,300 prisoners living in the jail. Okay. So it was notoriously overcrowded. That's what,
1: three times the? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Notoriously overcrowded and notorious for its poor conditions, needless to say, because there's way too many people in this prison. So now at the time in 1930, due to the overcrowding, they were currently under construction and there were construction crews working on expanding the prison. So there was scaffolding set up On one side of the building and on the night of april 21st a fire broke out on that scaffolding not quite sure how but the scaffolding itself is what caught first okay and the cell block adjacent to the scaffolding housed 800 prisoners and all of them at the time were already locked into their jail cells for the night so as the smoke started to fill this adjacent area the inmates just started begging to be let out of their cells because, you know, smoke is starting to pile in. There's a giant fire that's starting to spread. And according to a lot of the reports, unfortunately, the guards not only refused to unlock the cells, they continued to actively lock up more prisoners. Whoa. Yeah. And it was not a good situation. So meanwhile, the fire is spreading along the roof and it's endangering inmates in the upper levels as well. As not only that area adjacent to the scaffolding. And then finally, this is leading to a riot, basically. All the prisoners are panicked in fear of their lives. They don't want to burn alive. So two prisoners forcibly take the keys from a guard. They begin to self-rescue and rescue others. So- Approximately like 50 inmates, they get out of their cells before the heavy smoke starts to build up. And then they make like an impromptu evacuation and they, they get about, you know, 50 people out of the, out of the prison, the roof then caves in on the upper cells, about 160 prisoners end up burning to death. Wow. That's crazy. So it was. Not a good situation, and it's kind of what led to ultimately this prison being shut down. This was just one of the incidences in this prison's history, and then eventually, finally, this prison gets closed down. I think what year was it? It was in, I don't know, Uh, I I can't can't remember. Nineteen nineties, and this was fine. Yeah, the nineties, and this was finally because of the federal court ruling, which basically said that you have to be shut down. under void consent degree. So yeah, this was just one of its early tragedies in the history of this really, really fascinating prison, uh, which is now a museum. So you can go visit it and hear about all of these fun historical facts.
1: Yeah, and uh, so if Dr. Snook hadn't been executed, he may have died in this prison fire not too long after himself. Right. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. So to wrap up this episode, Ms. Mayday, why was the veterinarian sued?
0: I don't know why.
1: Meow practice.
0: (laughs) Oh, I like that. Meow practice. Oh, that's cute. I like that one.
1: Thank you all for listening. If you like us, rate us on wherever you listen. Help spread the word to your friends, family. Everybody like that. If anything, they could get some good dad jokes out of it.
0: Yes. (laughs) uh, (laughs) We'll talk to you next week. All right. See you next week. Bye. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Graw. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit BombshellBettysCalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.